We're exploring the theme of death and transitions and endings this month. And this is the final Sunday in that exploration, which feels really weird to me because there's about 17 sermons about endings and transitions and death that I want to preach <laughs> to you all. And, and those will come at some point in time. Those will come at some point in time. And in a really real way, the purpose of, of church, and it happens in our cycle of life and the, the, the emotions and the grief you bring into this place every Sunday we are reminded in some small fashion or other that we don't live forever, that we are approaching our own death. And that, in some ways, is what church should do so that it pushes us back to life to examine how we're living, how we're walking with those around us. I'm guessing, like so many of you, it's almost impossible to stop thinking about the devastate, devastation and destruction in Japan. I can't turn away from the news stories and the pictures and the media and with YouTube and sort of this instant communication system we have, it is real and it is immediate and it is in our faces. And I think about that earthquake and I think about the wall of water and it is, it was a massive wall of water, of bubbling, dark, powerful water that swept up people and trees and cars and buildings and airplanes and swept them under bridges and over bridges and flattened the landscape. I think about that force of dark, bubbling water and what that was like. And I look at those pictures, and it's hard to imagine. And the, the thing that I keep coming back to, the piece that I keep coming back to as I've wrestled with this, is the creation story in Genesis, the very first part of that story. Because embedded in that story is something that helps me make sense of what happened in Japan, what happens around the world when these forces, these wild, wild forces are unleashed. In that very first part of Genesis, you probably know this part. It's in the beginning. And as the Hebrew is translated, it really is saying, in the beginning, before God started making the heavens and earth and all of those things, before any of that, there was this formless void. There was this bubbling, swirling, chaotic mess of dark water roiling. That's the very beginning. And over that dark water, the Spirit of God hovered. The Spirit of God moved. So even in that chaotic, wild place, the Spirit of God was there. In Hebrew... The word for formless void, and that's how Genesis starts, this formless void, this water. The word for that is tohu vabohu. It's translated in English as formless void, but tohu vabohu points to something much, much deeper. Tohu vabohu points to sort of a incomprehensible wildness, a stirring, a chaos, a dark cosmic soup that is bubbling. And that's how things start in the creation story. Tohu vabohu, wild, uncontrollable, dark water. 
Tohu Vabohu is like that tsunami sweeping everything up. It is like a flooding river grabbing trees and branches and debris and running through houses and over roads and buildings and tearing up streets. Tohu Vabohu, that wildness, and you can relate to this as Minnesotans, is when you're driving in a blizzard and it is whiteout time, and your windshield wipers are screaming frantically across the front of your windshield, and your hands are knuckled on the wheel, and you cannot see, and you must submit, you must stop, you must pull over because it is too wild, and you wake up, or you come to the side of the road, and the next morning on Lakeshore Drive, you realize there were hundreds of other cars with you because it was such a wild, wild snowstorm. Tohu vabohu, humbling, terrifying, reminding us how little control we have. After the service, the first service, someone said, Tohu vabohu, it's like giving birth. (laughs) That place where you just surrender and you lose control. So these Hebrew writers who created this story, for them, order was critical. They needed order to plant their crops, to cultivate, to grow. They needed order in their communities. And so as they wrote this creation story, they imagined before that order was made, it was all chaos. It was tohu vabohu, before light came out of the darkness, before dry land out of the cosmic soup. The other important thing to remember in the story is that God doesn't govern by pounding creation into submission. He or she, that spirit in the story, governs by creating order out of chaos. By creating order out of chaos. And human beings made in the image of the divine in this story are then tasked with also creating order out of the chaos. It's what most religions help us do in large part, right? They help us create order and meaning in our lives, in this wild life, in this life where we know we are born and know we will die and how will we live between those two points. And so often we succeed, or at least partly succeed, in creating order in our lives. But the truth is, and as this story in Genesis reminds me, is the watery chaos, the tohu vabohu, is always right there. We might keep it at bay. We might push it a little bit away. But it is right there at the edge of the order we have created. It is part of creation. Sometimes that wildness comes from the natural world, an an earthquake or a tsunami. Sometimes it is man-made, but it is always there. I think of Japan in August of 1945, when two cities were leveled by an atomic bomb, by atomic bombs dropped by us, by the United States. Tens of thousands died. Countless others sickened with radiation sickness. And this incomprehensible firestorm covered the land and our moral compass spun. Over the decades, life and order returned. The chaos, the destruction was pushed away until the land shook again and the ocean devoured the countryside and radiation again leaked into the soil. And once again, 
we are confronted with the limits of human ingenuity, of human intelligence. We see how tenuous our order, our sense of control over the order we create really is. And it's not just about Japan. We know this. It's 9-11. It's the wildness, the crazy energy that was released after those towers fell. The chaos that unfolded as war and then recession and fear of Muslims gripped this country. It's not just Japan. It's here in Minnesota. It is the snowpack melting that will, in a week or two or three, as we embrace the coming of spring and tulips and daffodils rising up, our friends and neighbors will face their homes and livelihoods being flooded in uncontrollable water. So those words in Genesis, in this mythic, metaphorical creation story, help me make sense of the world. They remind me that embedded in creation is this tohu vabohu. It is part and parcel of this world, that wildness. We tame it, we control it some of the time. And in that story, I'm reminded also that we're always right on the edge of tohu vabohu coming back into our lives. What's happening in Japan reminds me how close we all are to some wild event unfolding. What's happening in Libya or on the Ivory Coast or in Yemen reminds me how close we all are. As we look around our own country and the safety nets collapse and we enter another war and the gulf between the have and the have-nots widens, it reminds me how close we all are to tohu vabohu. In smaller ways, too, in each of your lives, in each of our lives, you know what I'm talking about. It's when a loved one, the keystone in the arch of your life, when that person is gone and it feels like everything is collapsing around you. It's when your home is broken into and the place that was safe no longer feels safe. It's the cancer diagnosis, yours or a loved one's. It's your home being foreclosed on. It's losing your job. It's having to confront all that stuff that we all have, that we push away for as long as we can, the anger and the grief and the guilt, whatever it is, and we hold it at bay until the dam breaks and it rushes back in and we're upended by the force of it. Tohu vabohu. Swirling, stomach-dropping, disorienting wildness. And when that hits, when the floor drops out, it feels like an end. Indeed, something, a way that we saw the world, the way we oriented ourselves in the world, that has been swept away. So when the wildness hits, how can we respond? How might we respond? I'll share with you this story from the Hebrew Scriptures. It's a universal story. It's 587 BCE before the Common Era, and King Nebuchadnezzar of the Babylonians has destroyed much of Jerusalem. He's destroyed the temple, and he's taken a bunch of Jewish citizens and leaders into Babylon, into modern-day Mesopotamia or Iraq. He's holding them captive there. So I want you to really get into this. Imagine this group of people 
who were in their community, who had their way of life, their worship space, their sacred temple, and they have left all of that behind. It has been taken from them. They are in a new place, and there is tremendous disorientation and confusion and sadness about what has been lost. A way you might think of this, and this is a terrible analogy, but a way you might think of this as modern-day people connected to the internet and all this stuff, is if someone stripped your smartphone or your cell phone and your high-speed wireless access from you and took your favorite gadgets and things from around the house and people and places and then put you in a foreign sort of hostile country and all you had there was a crappy computer with (laughs) dial-up. It's a terrible analogy. But you understand, I'm trying to help you get into this place where you understand the dislocation this community of people is feeling as they've been torn from their homeland. It felt like the end. It felt like everything they knew, gone. It was made even worse by the fact that in the religious understanding of their time, the way they understood God was being located in a particular place, a particular plot of land, a particular temple. And so not only had they lost all they knew, but they had lost their God. And so captive in Babylon, they cry out, how can we sing Yahweh's song in a foreign land? They were cast into tohu vabohu, and they faced an existential and theological crisis. So when that kind of wildness, when that kind of theological crisis lands in our lap, how do we respond? I'll tell you what those Jews did, and maybe we can learn from this. In the midst of their despair and powerlessness, they began together to reimagine, to reimagine everything. They perhaps with the presence of that that spirit. Remember that spirit hovering over the deep that is present even in the dislocation, even in the wildness. Maybe with the presence of that spirit, they began to take apart their religion. And they somehow, together, began to imagine a bigger, different, more powerful, mind-blowing God than they'd ever thought about before. And they unhooked the old God they had believed in and worshipped, and they unhooked that God from a place, from the land, from the temple, and said, our God can be anywhere. And so, all of a sudden, God showed up in Babylon. And the point there is that this theological crisis, the wild place they were in of complete dislocation, it broke them out of their old ways of understanding the world, of seeing the world. They created an imagined something new. And they did it together. They did it together. And so the the piece I want to lift up here, there there are two. One is to remember in the story in Genesis, in the midst of that creation, the foundational story, there is this wildness, this craziness embedded in creation. Crisis will happen. Disaster will happen. Tsunamis will happen. Wars will happen. It is embedded in the fabric of creation. And our job when those crises hit is to turn to one another and together to lean into that crisis, to lean into what is offered up in that space. 
The Jews in exile decided they had to reimagine God. In doing that, they found new life. So when the world implodes around us, when the towers fall, when the tsunami hits, when a loved one dies, the question is where do we go from here? And the answer is together. We move from here together. Together we imagine what might be. Together we mourn and grieve what has happened. Together we rebuild and laugh and make sense of what remains. We do that in religious community. We do that when we pray together. We worship together. We talk to one another in small groups together. And together we recognize how little we know, how much we cannot control, how much we need the warmth and the love and the compassion and the open hand reaching out to us to help us see things anew. Together we forge a love that makes meaning and order out of the brokenness. It is not easy. It is not simple. Are you with me? I mean, is this making sense? I mean, do you hear, do you hear how taking in this news from Japan and trying to make sense of it and then going to this mythic story that says it's embedded in creation, this wildness. And part of our job is to, as best we can, create order out of the chaos. But the chaos and the wildness is always there. And together, we can create some sense of meaning and purpose. We can reimagine and see the world in different ways. We can make something from what's left. If you didn't follow the sermon, if that little summary I just shared with you (laughs) didn't make sense, I want to share a poem with you. I'm going to read it two times. Because this poem, I probably should have just read this poem. (laughs) Twice. And then sat down and said, like, that's the sermon. This says it better than I can say it. So if nothing I've said has stuck with you, (laughs) that's sort of the nightmare, right? It's like on Monday... Someone's like, hey, how was church on Sunday? You're like, it was good, it was good. What did, what did, the, what, what did you hear in the pulpit? Mm. <laughs> like, that's the nightmare. It's like, so, so you're going to leave with a concrete thing here. You're going to leave with something really concrete. All right, this is a poem from Rabbi Harold uh, Schulweis. And he writes, Rabbi Harold Schulweis, he writes, We have seen Ixat Perlman, who walks the stage with braces on both legs on two crutches. He takes his seat, unhinges the clasps of his legs, tucking one leg back, extending the other, laying down his crutches, placing the violin under his chin. On one occasion, one of his violin strings broke. The audience grew silent, but the violinist didn't leave the stage. He signaled the maestro, and the orchestra began its part. The violinist played with power and intensity on only three strings. With three strings, he modulated and changed and recomposed the piece in his head. He retuned the strings to get different sounds, turned them upward and downward. The audience screamed with delight, applauded their appreciation. 
Asked later how he had accomplished this feat, the violinist answered, It is my task to make music with what remains. And later, asked how he had accomplished this feat, the violinist answered, It is my task to make music with what remains. So, so dear ones, in the midst of it all, in the midst of endings and wildness and losses and terror and great joy and love, it is our task, our holy task, to make music with what remains. May it be so.